0: In the true story of God, the Bible and us, we've traversed creation where God's people, Adam and Eve, are in God's place, under God's rule. They're enjoying all the spoils and the blessing. But it doesn't take long before sin enters the world. That's at chapter 3, remember? Bringing curse to our world. And last week, we got to Genesis chapter 12, And looked at the promises of Abraham, of God to Abraham, and this is what God will do. So let's have a look at Abraham 12, just to recap, verses 2 and 3. This is what God will do. Verse 2, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Verse three, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's a promise of land, of nation, of family, and blessing. And as we read on the Bible, we see read on in the Bible, we see everything through this lens. The lens of these promises. We look for the fulfillment, we wait for the big reveal and today we reach 2 Samuel 7 and the story of King David. But before we move on too far, let's take a quick tour from Genesis 12 through to 2 Samuel 7 and see what's been happening in the true story of God, the Bible and us. You should cue the music there I think. A motion picture. Please, uh, this morning, um, when you've got these books, if you've got them with you, if you open up to the centre of the book, I won't use the word centrefold. I'm in trouble with that later. So you open up the uh, centre part of the the book, there's a timeline, and this timeline will be particularly helpful for us today. I've drawn all over mine in notes. Yours is probably clean still. If you have drawn on it and you want a new one, you can just let me know and I can easily provide that for you as well. Uh, So please open up the timeline in the centre of the booklet to follow along. I'll be putting some things on the screen as we go too. And if you're ambidextrous enough, please hold on to your Bibles as well and flick through and jot some notes on the chart. I don't know if you might need three hands for that. Uh, You might like to go back... In this week, uh, and read some of these key passages throughout um, your study time. So, first up, after the promise to Abraham in chapter 12, we see the promise of land, nation, and blessing. It passes from Abraham to Isaac in Genesis 24. And Isaac has twin sons, and there's the rivalry of Jacob. And Esau, and that's in Genesis 27. And the promise here passes to Jacob. In Genesis 35, God confirms the promises to Abraham, and the family grows. Jacob has 12 sons, including Joseph. And Joseph ends up sold by his brothers into Egypt. That's in Genesis 37. And is presumably away from God's people. And God's blessing. But at the end of Genesis, we see this as God's plan to be a blessing to the nations. Genesis 50. Then we move into the book of Exodus. Exodus opens with a bit of a surprise. Israel is fruitful. They've multiplied greatly as a fulfillment of the promise. But there's horrible slavery and oppression Israel is outside the land and seemingly is outside God's blessing, but not outside God's care and concern. And Moses comes from the people, but is raised as an Egyptian. God chose or chooses Moses to lead his people out of Egypt in Exodus 12. When they leave Egypt, they go through the Red Sea in Exodus 14. Past Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, where God gives the Ten Commandments that we see in Exodus 20. And through the wilderness years to the border of the promised land. And throughout everything, God is with them, even though they're not in God's place. And if you want to look at Exodus 40. Then we move into the book of Leviticus, You could sum up the book of Leviticus with God's repeated command, be holy as I am holy, Leviticus 19 verse 2. Leviticus is a book of laws, but it's also a book of worship. This book is filled with details of how the people of God should live, how they should eat, sacrifice, celebrate, and much more. Then we move into the book of Numbers and Numbers tells us the story of Israel's wanderings through the wilderness en route to the promised land of Canaan. Numbers begins and ends with Moses counting all the people in the nation which is how the book gets its name. It's essentially a big census. On to Deuteronomy. Israel is about to finally enter the promised land of Canaan but before they do Moses rallies the people to remind them of God's law and what they should and why they should obey him. This is how the book of Deuteronomy gets its name. It's the second giving of God's law. Take a look at Deuteronomy thirty, verse 19, verses nineteen to twenty. Jot those down. And Deuteronomy closes off the first five books of the Old Testament called the Pentateuch, the books of the law. And now we move into the historical books of the Old Testament, beginning with the book of Joshua. And you'll remember that we read through the book of Joshua throughout the first half of this year during our Acts series. Joshua recounts the history of how Joshua, succeeding Moses, chosen by God to lead his people back into the promised land. And all along the way, we see God fulfilling his promises God's people, in God's place, under God's blessing. But in every single generation, God's people are reaching out to take what's not theirs. And we remember particularly Achan's sin, reminiscent of the original sin. I saw, I desired... I took and I hid. That's Joshua 7. But it's only because of God's grace and determination to do what he says that God's plans are fulfilled. Now we come to the book of Judges. Judges is the account of how Israel behaves between the death of Joseph and the leadership of a king. It's a time of being settled in the land, but some of the judges uh, lead them in the ways of God and some lead them away from the ways of God. Some of the famous names you might recall from uh, the book of Judges are Gideon, Ehud, and Deborah. doesn't sound very uh, Old Testament to me. And now we jump into the books of 1 and 2 Samuel and all this prepares us for a king. We see Saul as the first king, but he's not particularly impressive. He fails, and now we meet God's king, King David. The shepherd boy chosen by God to be the king. But ever since the fall in Genesis 3, we've seen blessing turn to curse. We've seen light to darkness. We've seen life to death. And sin is born in the heart of one person and ends up filling the whole world. Things are really broken. But God painted a picture for Abraham in Genesis 12, the promise, saying that he can look forward to a future of blessing, a future where the order of things will be restored. And when we get to 2 Samuel 7, we see that that picture Looks like we're back in the garden. We're back in God's place, under God's rule, and we're enjoying God's blessing. It looks like Israel has landed in the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. It looks like Eden revisited, but we know that God's promises, that God promises us even more, pointing towards a greater king and a greater kingdom God is reaffirming his promises and extending them far beyond even David's wildest imagination. You see, King David, he's God's partial reveal. We're now changing our lens from this wide-angle view, zooming in from the nation of Israel into one individual, King David. The promises look like they're fulfilled through David. David. Remember David, the small shepherd boy that was a teenager, slays Goliath. He rises to the position of king, duly endorsed by God. Under David, the people of God are in the promised land. They're enjoying blessing and peace. And if we take up the story today at 2 Samuel 6, if you've still got your Bibles open there. Two Samuel six. In that section there we'll see the Ark of the Covenant being returned to Jerusalem. As a sign of his covenant, God had the Israelites make a box according to his own design. And you can find that design detail in Exodus twenty five if you want to. In which he places the stone tablets containing the Ten Commandments. This box or chest was called a, called an ark, and it was made of acacia wood overlaid with gold. The ark was to be housed in the inner sanctum of the tabernacle in the desert and later on in the temple when it was built in Jerusalem. The chest is known as the Ark of the Covenant. And as the Ark of the Covenant is is being returned to Jerusalem, there's dancing and there's feasting and there's rejoicing. God's people in God's place In God's presence. And David has settled into his uh, newly built palace and is celebrating the return of the ark of God's presence to Jerusalem. But as we begin to read chapter 7 today, David sees a problem in verse 2. David says, Here I am, living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. See, David's built for himself an amazing, beautiful, majestic palace. He's rightly concerned that the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God with them, is still just living in a tent. uh, Nathan the prophet replies to David in verse 3, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it. For the Lord is with you. David can't see a problem building a temple for the Lord, and neither can Nathan, the prophet. And the good old Nike slogan comes to mind just do it. But that very night, the word of the Lord comes to Nathan, saying, Tail into verse 5 Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I think the answer to this question is clearly no. The Lord goes on to say in verse 6, He's not dwelt in a house from the day he brought the Israelites out of Egypt. He's been with his people wherever they have gone, from place to place, living in a tent. You see, the Lord God is not worried. He's not concerned about not having a home. He dwells wherever his people are. And from verse 8, David is reminded by the Lord through Nathan, Hey, remember I took you from the pasture. You were a shepherd boy tending to the sheep. I appointed you ruler of my people Israel, and I've been with you everywhere, cutting off your enemies before you. And at the tail end of verse 9 we read, Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth there's a reaffirming and an extension of the promises here to Abraham so let's follow it through there's a number of I will statements from the Lord here that's God speaking making a promise the first one I will make your name great verse 9 that we just read and then in verse 10 I will provide a place for For my people Israel, a home of their own, a forever home. And verse 11, I will give you rest from all your enemies. And then, but wait, there's a bit more here. At the end of verse 11 and into verse 13. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself, and who better to make that promise than the Lord himself, will establish a house, and here he means a dynasty, for you. Then in verse 12, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors. You see, David's still got the same problem as we have. The big problem called sin. And sin is the reason for our death. And continuing on. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. And I will establish his kingdom. Now, in verse 13, continuing to speak about this descendant, he is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God has stepped in via Nathan and says no to David. He says to David, No, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you one. I'm going to build a dynasty where your descendant will reign over your kingdom and my people and his kingdom will be a forever kingdom. It's a reminder that we don't build God's kingdom. God does. It points us to this forever king whose throne will be established forever Beyond David, you see, David's not the guy. Because, as we later read, even David can't keep away from sin. When he commits adultery and he tries to cover it up with murder. And so sin and shame enter David's story and murder is hardly much of a fig leaf to cover it up. To prevent him from being exposed. And even though there are glimpses of God's promise in David's rule, sin ends up ruining the kingdom and turning blessing to curse. And David is but a glimpse, he's a partial reveal of this forever king. But we need someone else to come, some other king, this forever king, spoken about in verse 13 and pointed to in verse 16. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. You see, we've caught but a glimpse of this king in 2 Samuel 7. And we know that a true and forever king will bring real blessing to God's people, real rest to God's people who will establish God's people at God's place, in his presence, better than Eden, with an end to sin and an end to shame. And friends, that's where we're headed. But where do we find the final reveal of God? This is not the end of the true story of God, the world and us. We know that David's not the guy. He fails. It's not David's son or his son. On this side of the cross, the fulfillment of the promises are found only in Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is God's final reveal. Perhaps you're familiar with Arndo. Arndo came to Australia as a little boy, a refugee. He's grown up in Australia and has become one of our uh, most loved comedians. Perhaps what you didn't know is that he's also a writer and a talented artist. He was runner-up in the Archibald Archibald Art Prize. He hosts a show on the ABC called Arne's Brush with Fame. I don't know if you've seen it. But it's not really a show about painting. It's about people. Ando gets one person per episode and he sits them in the comfy yellow chair. But what Ando does really well is that he's a great listener. As they sit in the comfy yellow chair, he makes them feel safe. As he's working away on the canvas, he's asking them questions. And we get small glimpses along the way, but we don't get to see what he's painted until the final reveal at the end. The Book of Revelation for us is where God makes the final reveal. What it's going to look like. And Arne's brush with fame, we've seen in and like Arne's brush with fame, we've seen glimpses of Jesus along the way, but it's not until Revelation five that we get to see the big reveal we get to who, see who is sitting on the throne, the forever king. And in Revelation 5, verse 5, we're going right to the end of the Bible now, he's described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And it's to Judah that the ruling kingship is promised, and he's also described as the root of David, described as the one who has come From David and is before David. This is the king that God has promised, the king who is on the throne forever. He is then described in 5 verse 6 as a lamb looking as if he has been slain, standing in the middle of the throne like the sacrificial lamb of the Passover, the mighty king who is on the throne, who is absolutely alive. He's also the one who dies, dies as a sacrifice to rescue his people from slavery. It's clearly a picture of Jesus. When God turns the painting around to show us the big reveal, he shows us Jesus. Jesus crucified, Jesus the risen one, Jesus, the one who took our sin. Jesus, the one who carried all our guilt and shame to the cross. Jesus, the one who was stripped down until he was practically naked. And Jesus, the one who felt the searing judgment and wrath of God against sin. Not the sins he had committed, but the ones we have committed. The passage in Revelation 5 goes on to say something else about the king, that his blood... The king has purchased people for God from every tribe, every nation, every people, every language. So, what we see here in Revelation clearly links back to the promises to Abraham that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through the descendants of Abraham. It's connecting back to the promises to David in 2 Samuel 7, if we look at verse 13 again, that there will be a king who reigns on this throne forever. And all the promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is revealed to us as the true and forever king who comes to take away our shame, to deal with all our guilt, who clothes us with his own robe of righteousness who welcomes us at his table to the wedding feast of the Lamb and who removes our guilt and takes away the sting of death forever. When we see him revealed to us, we know that if it's him, we know that under his gaze we can reveal everything. We can be completely vulnerable we can sit on the yellow comfy chair and let ourselves be completely known because we know that we'll be completely loved and accepted as you sit on the comfy yellow chair and as you tell your story and as you reveal yourself is that showing the true story that you belong to Jesus that you live a life under his rule blessing and love do you tell yourself and show to others that you are warmly and confidently accepted by the King? Or would you sit on the comfy yellow chair and tell you just your part of the story, just part of your story, just the parts you want others to know, just the parts you're not ashamed of, the parts you're proud of, and exclude the parts that involve sin and shame? The times you've spoken harshly to your spouse, to your children, to your parents. The times you've broken the law, treated others unfairly and without love. Or the times you might have been violent and abusive. Would you exclude those things? But the true story is that if you belong to Jesus, you are completely known by the King. The one who covers over your sin and shame completely. The one who is the forever king. You're under his blessing, love and rule. The true story is that you are accepted by God. You can face up to your sin being confident in grace. Because he knows and loves you exactly as you are. When you sit on the comfy yellow chair... And Arne asks you about your story. Will he see Jesus? Will he paint your portrait and see Jesus?